Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Sorry to keep you waiting, but uh, we've got good news. We've got a... Just spoke with Speaker McCarthy... And we've reached a bipartisan budget agreement that we're ready to move to the full Congress. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, Ron DeSantis joins the GOP 2024 field, which begs the question, if a DeSantis does a space on Twitter and no one heard it, does it make a sound? Nick and I will weigh in on the latest of last week's announcement by the Florida governor on Twitter. If you missed this whole fiasco, we'll get into it. Plus, Nick, America is finally paying its debt. Kind of. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have come to an agreement like you heard in the beginning of the show. Nick and I on what this all means Later on in the program, the co-host of the new show on Leon Media Network, Educate Us, Stacey Schultz and Patrice Fenton. They're going to join us to discuss this new education podcast coming to Leon Media Network starting June 5th. We're going to find out more about the pod. They have a book coming out soon. And we're even going to examine an issue that's playing out right now currently in education. Uh, First, I want to say for people that are listening to this show On the Tuesday after Memorial Day, happy Memorial Day to the men and women of the armed forces and to those that we lost in the line of duty protecting this great nation. We can't thank you enough for your service. We salute you. Uh, Nick, I know uh, before we actually dive into our first segment here, you wanted to mention something. You had sent this to me over the weekend, uh, and it's actually going to funnel into our debt ceiling conversation because there's money being allocated Uh, two veterans within this uh, agreement that President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have come to. And it was a video of like a vet that had been struggling and the VA wasn't paying for some of his services. So every time he was starting with a new therapist, 
you know, it went in, it went out of um, network or in network. He couldn't get the coverage. He was struggling to pay that bill or he had to get kicked to another uh, licensed therapist now. And it's like starting over again and reliving that trauma. You sent me this video. You and I were like, this, this is terrible that that things like this are happening to veterans that are out there. And I know you wanted to share a little bit about that story here before we get into our first segment. Yeah, you know. You know, we think about Memorial Day, we think about Veterans Day. You know, we have two national holidays dedicated to soldiers, you know, those who, those who've served, right? Um, it's the only profession in this country, actually, where we're a specific profession um, that we honor in that way because we, we value it. So, so we think, um, you know, the budget right now, that goes to veterans continues to get bigger. Like I, I credit the federal government for that. Like there's numbers that you can see in the Pew Center and other places where, you know, our gov- our spending for for veterans continues to grow. But what happens with that spending continues to be uneven. Data points out that this is also from the Pew Center as well, I believe. Um, you know, post veterans post 9/11 have had a harder time accessing resources. Um, the the faith in in the military continues to erode um you know we've most recently have wrapped up operations in afghanistan you know a 20-year conflict um to the people coming home you know what 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 do we do that soldier's concern like just what was coming up for him emotionally um is very jarring because it's a constant reminder that we we talk a huge game about veterans and supporting the troops in this country. Um, but we do sometimes a piss poor job of actually caring about these folks. You know, you know, the NFL oftentimes likes to put forward, you know, the, the flag, fly jets over games, and and then you step back and you realize, well, actually, how what is the NFL actually doing for veterans? Right. Um, oftentimes the way we celebrate the military in this country is performative. We're actually not, we, while we put money behind it, again, the way our resources are allocated is not hitting the mark. It's one video, yes, critics will say, but that's, that's a veteran's voice that we're hearing that is clearly not honored. And you can give this person, you can own two days of the year, recognize the work that this person does. But if that person is not getting the help that they need, what actually are we achieving? You know, the way veteran support works is there's multiple levels to it where you can go from actually paying a copay to having a, a severe enough disability where you do not. And we have all these categories, right? And you ask yourself, well, you know, why do we do that? Like if a person has made this choice to serve our country, why don't they just come home and have access to the best benefits we can provide? And the fact that we segment the way we do, um, it brings up a lot of questions. When I saw that video and I thought about Memorial day coming up, um, it just produces anger in me because it seems like we've always done a horrible job of taking care of our veterans. No, really well said. Um, the, the video, uh, again, and I don't know who posted it or what Twitter account posted it, but you can find it. It's a veteran that was in his car kind of talking to the camera and just, you know, trying to let, you know, let out those frustrations that he was having with the support that he was getting or lack thereof from the VA. Um I want to transition real quick because as best as I can, um, we got named Nick 
you and I by the good folks over at Good Pods, one of the best podcasts for a nuanced understanding of news. Um, and if you don't know who Good Pods is, you can go follow them over on Twitter, or on Facebook, on Instagram, the independent podcast platform that we always shout out at the end of the show. Uh, funny enough, uh, we were recently named one of the best podcasts out there for an understanding of news. And I, I'm just so belated. Excuse me. I'm so excited, elated, not belated. Uh, it's belated in me thanking them. I'm elated in the fact that uh, I, I can't tell you how happy that makes me to know that not only people are listening to this show and enjoying this program, but that they're taking something away from it. And now they're putting it on a list with other podcasts that are out there that maybe are trying to do the same thing. Maybe not, but I, I, I will always live in this line of, you know, words matter. And I don't want to do confrontational journalism. I don't want to sit here and argue with somebody that I diametrically oppose. Like that's not, that's not my goal. That's a shouting match. No one's going to get a word in edgewise and you're not going to hear anything that either person's going to change their mind. I'm not here to change anybody's mind. That's not the point of journalism. The point of journalism is to lay out the facts and, and not your fact, not my fact. It's to lay out the actual facts and then you digest and you take those set of facts and commonalities that you hear on this program, that you hear on the New York Times' daily show, that you hear on NPR's Up First or Morning Edition, that you hear on CNN, that you hear on MSNBC. It doesn't matter where you get it from, but you need to diversify. You need to keep listening to a bunch of different places and you should take the same series of facts and commonalities across. And that's what we're trying to do. We're adding to that discourse and giving you informed perspective. You're hearing from journalists, members of Congress. So I couldn't be more excited to have made that list. And I want to shout out the folks over at Good Pods. And in keeping with that theme, Nick, let's get into our first segment. Let's try to break down the news that everyone over the weekend may have seen this emergency uh, presser that President Biden gave uh, I forget what the name of that room is, but we had a few reporters, folks that listen to this program religiously, Nolan McCaskill over at The Messenger, Idris Ali over at Reuters, Jimena Bustillo over at NPR, all three friends of the program. Few of them have been at our live DC show. All of them were in that room asking President Biden about this massive deal with Speaker McCarthy that came uh, to be uh, over the weekend, over the holiday weekend to avoid default. Now it goes to the House and Senate to see if it will pass. The bill, obviously, if approved, it's going to allow the federal government to borrow money up until at least November of 2024. The current debt ceiling right now is at $31.4 trillion. And we've had different people on this program. You heard Deepa Shivram a few episodes ago from NPR, Lisa Desjardins from PBS NewsHour. They cover this as well. All of them really mentioned this June 5th date that Janet Yellen had mentioned the, the U.S. would run out of money and default on its bills. And the impact, the impact that would have been felt, federal employees, military, folks on Social Security and Medicare and other programs, tax refunds, all of this would have been affected in some way, shape or form if this did not come to be. And again, still has to get passed by the House and Senate. Let's take a listen to a little bit of the presser that President Biden gave I believe it was on Sunday. And then you're going to hear some of the questions that Idris and Jimena that were part of the presser asked. Take a listen to this. Just spoke with Speaker McCarthy and we've reached a bipartisan budget agreement that we're ready to move to the full Congress. And I think it's a really important step forward. Excuse me. <clears throat> and it takes uh, the threat of catastrophic default off the table. 
protects our hard-earned and historic economic recovery. And the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. The Speaker and I made clear from the start that the only way forward was a bipartisan agreement. That agreement now goes to the United States House and to the Senate. I strongly urge both, both chambers to pass that agreement. What do you say to members of your own party who say you've made too many concessions in this deal? They'll find I didn't. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President do you believe Speaker Somebody McCarthy did? has the vote, and did he negotiate in good faith? I think he negotiated with me in good faith. He kept his word. He said what he would do. He did, did what he said he'd do. And I have no idea whether he had the votes. I expect he does. But <laughs> I don't think he would have made the agreement. Do you have a comment? are saying that this policy will lead some people to go hungry. What is your response to that? It's a ridiculous assertion. The last two questions that you heard there, was Idris and Jimena respectively obviously asking about the good faith negotiation, Jimena asking about uh, some Democrats saying this will leave people uh, without food or without or homeless, I believe is what she said in the clip there. Um, so shout out to them, first off, for covering all of this and, and Nolan McCaskill, like we, we mentioned before who's been covering this. All right, Nick, this kind of broke over the weekend. You know, it's a holiday weekend here in the U.S. Uh, if the U.S. would default on its bills uh, uh, starting June 5th, this would have a global ripple effect. And we've had so many different people explain this. You and I are not economists, right? Um, you and I are, are trying to give informed perspective. And that's why we've had different people on the program to talk about this and its importance. And as we continue to get closer and closer to this date that the Secretary of Treasury kind of said, hey, if we don't hit this date, we're going to default. And we know the impact and 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 how the world views the US and, and its credit rating and, and, and being able to pay its debt. What did you make of not only the things that are in the bill itself, um, at least what has been released to the media in terms of this agreement that's been sent out? Republicans are kind of championing that they've 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 made some concessions here with respect to now there won't be massive spending. There's no cuts to the military. The Biden administration, you heard the president there saying this is what compromise is, right? Nobody kind of gets what they want, but we come to an agreement. What you what are some of your takeaways of the bill? And now that we won't default, uh, what, what do you think this goes in the House and Senate? Do you think there are the votes, to Idris's point, to pass this bill? Yeah, you know, over the weekend, um, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut was on another program, and, and it talked about the fact that normally, you know, when it comes to the debt ceiling, this is not something Congress tries to, you know, historically tries to, you know, hold America hostage on. Um, but we're seeing in the House, especially where there are some Republicans that are just adamant about trying to cut government spending, right? Um, and it leads into a path of, of compromise that needs to be made. But that is, that's sort of how our government works, right? Uh, it is funny, of course, that, you know, all, <laughs> that spending will all be limited, except in the, def in, in the defense department. Always important, right? Go back to what I said a little while ago <laughs> about defense spending in the United States. Um, yeah, but some of the things that really stand out is, you know, one, there's there's two around the environment, which I think people should pay attention to. One is around you know, reducing the timeline for where for when environmental impact statements need to be released for proposed projects and also reforming how federal agencies conduct environmental impact statements. You know, those are important because that's telling you that we're going to make some changes to the way we're paying attention to environmental the environment, you know, when we are putting together different projects. 
environmentalists have already talked about some concerns about that, that that may reduce a level of government oversight, which then allows for development to take place without without doing due diligence, you know, in studying environmental factors. You know, along the lines also of um, reduction, redu- reduced funding for the Internal Revenue Service. Obviously, we we were familiar with, I believe it was like 86, 87,000 additional employees to the IRS, which Democrats argued would allow for more vigilance of paying attention to tax cheats and those who are not paying their fair share, right? Um, Republicans were very adamant about just looking at the number, like we're putting too many people in working at the IRS. So that's being reduced. You know, something that, you know, I was, I did not know about, but it's listed here, um, you know, ending the current pause on student loan repayments and interest accrual 60 days after June 30th. For any of you who've been paying back student loans and have noticed that there have been multiple pauses and, you know, the essentially the ability to not make payments when it's been just a difficult time economically in 60 days after June 30th, that comes to an end. And once again, you know, just look at the priorities that our country espouses in a bill like this, right? You know, we we still make sure we want to collect money from you know student loan requests, which you know the government puts a vig on in interest rates. And let's be honest about that for a minute. But we want that money back, right? But we also want to make sure we keep spending on the military. So these priorities continue to accrue. Now, one thing that's not mentioned in the article, but this has been talked about a lot about work requirements. For folks receiving TAMP, which of course is temporary assistance for needy families, if you remember, we talked about the T- about TANF in the form of what was going on in Mississippi with the Brett Favre story, uh, courtesy of Anna Wolf, now Pulitzer Prize winning Anna Wolf, um, and also SNAP, which is supplemental nutritional uh, assistance for families and for parents, um, and same thing work work requirements. People have said, well, we can't, we shouldn't. You know, critics of this have said we shouldn't require that. The thing is, you should check your state. Those are two state aid programs. You know, they get their money from the federal government, but the decision about whether you get access to these funds lives with the state. In the state of Pennsylvania, there are work requirements for both of those programs. So it's just important to be informed about that. I think, you know, I think people rightfully or at least argued that, well, you know, we're putting work requirements on poor people. Why are we doing that? Folks, and depending on the state, that's already in place. This is just putting more restrictions on, or this gives the federal government more guidance to in to ask for that in states where maybe that's not necessarily the case. Right. Um, there's a bunch of different takeaways that I have, but first, you know, the president's trying to tout that you know he can work across the other side of the aisle, and and here's a big bill, so he better hope uh, Kevin McCarthy has the votes there. Uh, and again, House Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries has been making his way around, uh, you know, the Sunday shows. He hasn't really tipped his hand one way or the other. He's been very, you know, I got to read it. I got to see how the caucus feels and stuff like that. Let me read some of the things from Jimena's great article that you can go check out at NPR.org. If the bill is passed, according to this, uh, it sets spending caps for the federal budget in the first two years for 24 and 25. It raises the age of food stamp recipients subject to work reporting time limit requirements from 50 to 54. Uh, creates new exemptions that waive work requirements for younger adults from ages 18 to 24. It uh, places new restrictions on how often states can waive work requirements for food stamp recipients. It reduces the timeline from when environmental impact statements need to be released. Um, it claws back the funding for the Internal Revenue Service. You know, Kevin McCarthy was on Fox News Sunday this past weekend talking about taking back, you know, the administration's uh, agents that they were going to hire. 
um, recently. So that's been a, a big, I wouldn't say so much a talking point, but it's been something that's been harped on by not only the Freedom Caucus, but some of the other House Republicans out there. Um, so there's a bunch of different things in this bill. Like I said, we'll see if it does get passed. Uh, 218 is what you need here in the House. So we're going to find out over the next couple of days, probably by the next time our next episode comes out, we'll have a better update as to where that bill is and if it has been passed. Remember, Monday, June 5th is rapidly approaching whenever you're listening to this. Um, let me transition into somebody who was not crazy about uh, House Republicans working on this, and that's somebody who's running for president. Nick, uh, as Governor Ron DeSantis in my state here in Florida, recently announced last week on Twitter, I don't know if it was Twitter Spaces or it was something with respect to Twitter's being live, and he went on there with David Sachs, who's a co-host of the All In podcast, and Elon Musk, obviously the owner of Twitter. I'm not going to play any of that here because all you're going to hear is a lot of dead air. If you were joining the space live, you would have heard the same exact thing. Uh, apparently, they were having audio technical issues. Um, not really the best way for the campaign to kind of kick off, as we've played others like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, who have done in person, in venue, in their hometown. You get the crowd behind you. You get the signs behind you. And I heard somebody on a political podcast say, the reason you do that is the long tail effect. Right. No, everyone's going to remember that he had this issue. The long tail effect of Tim Scott and Nikki Haley is clips from that hour that they do in front of the crowd will now be played everywhere. Now that lives with YouTube, with social media. Those clips live everywhere. Ron DeSantis doesn't have that clip living anywhere because there was audio issues and technicalities. But what I do have for you guys and gals out there listening is he was on Fox News recently from Jacksonville, Florida, and they asked him a question that I want to play for you here, Nick, because we're going to touch on this before we go to the break of what DeSantis feels like he's going to be running on in 24. Remember, he wants to tell people that he can beat Joe Biden, right? First, he's got to beat the elephant in the room, uh, literally uh, and figuratively, kind of, uh, and that is the former president and Donald Trump. Take a listen to what he said on Fox and Friends recently. The first comment I hear over and over again is why doesn't Ron DeSantis wait for President Trump's second term and then run? And what is your best answer? To that? Why is right now the time for Ron DeSantis to run for president? Because the, everyone knows if I'm the nominee, I will beat Biden uh, and I will serve two terms and I will be able to uh, destroy leftism in this country and leave woke ideology on the dustbin of history. Uh, at the end of the day, I've shown in Florida an ability to win huge swaths of voters that Republicans typically can't win while also delivering the boldest agenda anywhere in the country. Nick, as that clip was playing, you just texted me. He couldn't even beat Trump in Florida. Um, I'm, I've been saying this to other folks that live in the Republican sphere, uh, from strategists to just friends of mine that vote along uh, the Republican Party lines, right? Whoever's kind of wearing the, the R hat at the time, they're just going to vote for. And there, there has been a swath of people that are very big into DeSantis. I will, I will say that folks that I know that have voted for Trump in not only 2016 and in 2020 that are off of the Trump train and they're on the DeSantis train right now. Um, but according to most polls that are out there, and not only in the CPAC poll, but other polls, uh, Donald Trump is leading by a large majority. And you heard that guy on Fox and Friends. That was a fill-in host. I don't know who that was. He asked a question like, why, why now? And I've heard other podcasts kind of say his why now is because 
can't run for governor again. And he'll be out of the political spotlight if he doesn't do this now. He's faced with this task right now of can he beat the guy in front of him that was not only the former president, but has the signs, the merch, the, the rallies. And, and while they may have diminished in size and coverage, he still can go out there and attract an audience. And he's still the bully on the block. Ron DeSantis is not a bully on the block, but he did win Florida by so much that he feels that he can carry that nationally. I don't feel that same way. He feels that same way. What says Nick Savary of not only him finally announcing that he's going to be running for president, but some of the stuff that you just heard there and then ultimately beating the proverbial elephant in the room and former President Donald Trump? Yeah, Florida is in the rest of the country um, in terms of the, in terms of the GOP. So I, I, yeah, I texted you jokingly. I don't think he beats Trump in Florida. And um, I, I, I'll stand on that. I mean, he I think DeSantis obviously in the last election did well, right? He beat Charlie Chris pretty decisively. Um, but the elephant, I mean, no pun, well, pun intended, I guess, in the Republican Party, but yeah, the elephant in the room is Donald Trump. And yeah, I, I heard, um, that I think during DeSantis's, uh, you know, um, Twitter spaces event, like he said, he was just talking his stuff, right? And then I think Donald Trump tweeted out, like, on, on a true social, rather, his height. <laughs> at the standards is five seven and obviously i can't stand the former president uh, and i don't agree with him on anything except well the china thing i'm willing to have this conversation with him about about economically um but his track record of dealing with that was foolish anyway so but i yeah I, it's really fascinating to me because you know i've heard reports about donors that have been starting to move their money towards DeSantis, and what i would say to anyone doing that is that that seems like you're throwing your money away because there's no there's no poll right now that tells you that DeSantis has any legitimate shot. There is absolutely nothing redeeming about Ron DeSantis. And I and it's funny for him to say, to put Biden's name in his mouth because he is about to run a massive uphill climb against who is likely going to be the winner of the party's nomination, which is Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I mean. We're going to be covering it. It's going to be exciting to see it play out like we did in 22. We did a, some focus groups that we played some of the stuff here on the show. We're going to do a lot of that as well. Uh, upcoming as we go into the 24 election cycle. And we even got a politics show coming out on Leon Media Network with somebody you've seen on television that's going to be doing a lot of this stuff. So stay tuned for that. Uh, when we come back after the break, the cast, the crew of the Educate Us podcast, Nick Savary. His co-host, Stacey Schultz, Patrice Fenton. We're going to get into the show and we're going to get into the world of education when we come back after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right, quick break from the podcast to tell you about the good folks over at Fresh Roasted Coffee, the official sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast. You know, Nick, I want to do this different, this ad read. You hear the music in the background, but let's tell the people about what we truly like about Fresh Roasted Coffee. I'm going to go first because I love their Colombian Supremo. It's my favorite K-cup. Everybody in my family has been ordering it. It's it, You can smell it when you're putting it in the K-cup machine. It's just so delicious and refreshing to know that I don't have to go with some of these other brands that are out there, that their coffee just doesn't translate into K-cups for me. And you know I'm a big K-cup guy, and I just, I just love what fresh roasted coffee brings me in the morning. I know I can make my cup of coffee, make my omelet, have my breakfast ready to go. What do you love about fresh roasted coffee, Mr. Mr. Coffee Snob, aficionado? I love the fact that they've turned my... They've turned my coffee setup into the best coffee shop in town. You know, about a mile down the road from me is a a coffee company known for a particular shade of green, shall we say. I haven't stepped foot in there since you've introduced me to Fresh Roasted Coffee. Love it. They have absolutely, this company, folks, I got to tell you, Fresh Roasted Coffee turned my home into the best coffee shop in town. Now, Mike talked about flavors. I am a vanilla person. Every time I order from Fresh Roasted Coffee, by the way, can we get 20? We'll make sure you save 20% off your first order. When I order vanilla, ha- the hazelnut, coconut, it's my it's my holy trinity of coffee, respect, <laughs> um, and it never fails. It comes in the box, ready to go. It's the perfect blend of flavor, but also strength, because when I wake up in the morning, I want a strong cup of coffee but i also want to get that flavor too and in a french press as soon as i push it down four minutes of course let it steep just get it right i'm good to go and i'm blowing through the coffee i mean these folks at at fresh rose of coffee know every few weeks i'm calling in and if you want to folks you can be a subscriber too like i'm gonna become mike they've (laughs) they've turned my home into the ultimate coffee experience i can't i can't put it any better than that I mean, you really can't sum it up better than that. And like Mr. Severi mentioned, you go to FreshRoastedCoffee.com right now. Not only coffee, they have tea as well. They're Positively Tea sister brand. But you put all of this stuff, you go onto their site, you take their quiz, you get the coffee, you get the tea, you get the mugs, anything you want. When you get to checkout, enter in the promo code, can we get 20 to get 20% off the delicious coffee. Head to FreshRoastedCoffee.com today. All right, I'm excited about this. Now, joining us is the cast. The cast, that's right. Normally you say cast for like a Broadway show, but similar enough, the cast of the Educate Us podcast coming to Leon Media Network uh, starting Monday, June 5th. 
Stacey Schultz, Patrice Fenton. Welcome, ladies, to the podcast. Thanks, Mike, for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited for you guys to be here. They will be co-hosting this new education podcast along with my co-host, Nick Savary. So I'm happy to loan him out. As a matter of fact, you can take him full time if you want. Uh, more on that in a second. But uh, let's start first introducing our audience. If you don't know anything about the show, you can go to leonmedianetwork.com backslash educate us and you can find out more about this show. Get ready for episodes, like I mentioned, starting Monday, June 5th. But Stacey, I'll start with you first. For the audience that doesn't know you guys, maybe they haven't visited the site yet, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in education. Sure, absolutely. So um, first and foremost, I am a mom of three, uh, three school-aged children um, that are in middle school and elementary school. Um, I've been in the education world as a teacher, um, administrator, uh, coach, worked at Teachers College um, in the secondary residency program, also worked with TNTP, traveling the country and also doing virtual coaching in early 2014 and 13 and, and, and such, supporting leaders going from good to great and also some other programs that they did. And then now I'm working with Educate LLC, and we support schools in creating more equitable and meaningful pedagogical experiences for students. And so that's a little bit about me, a little bit about my um, career in education, and also get the pleasure of working with Nick and Patrice, both in the podcast world and uh, in our day jobs. Yeah. And affectionately titled Educate Us is where we kind of stole the name from. So Educate LLC, don't sue me for that one. Uh, we may clip that out. Uh, Patrice, tell us a little bit about yourself and your education background. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so I'm Patrice Fenton, born and raised in Brooklyn, also a mom, mom of two, uh, one nine-year-old going on 29, as I like to say, um, and one 18-year-old. So I have two ends of the spectrum, one's in elementary and then others just finishing up college, which is very weird to say. Um, I have experience as a special education teacher in District 13 in Brooklyn, the very district where I went to school. Um, I also have experience as a assistant professor, adjunct assistant professor at Hunter College in New York City, um, a researcher, uh, leadership development specialist, equity strategist, um, coach, and organizational leader. So I do have the pleasure, as, as Stacey mentioned, of being colleagues with Nick and Stacy at Educate. Um, and I've also co-founded uh, an organization called the Ella Baker Institute, where I serve as the head of organizational well-being. That's great. We're going to get into a bunch of that stuff because I want to learn more a little bit about it. And like I mentioned, this triumvirate, you will check out new episodes from them coming uh, Monday, June 5th. All right. Now, I know we teased it in the episode that's going to be coming out on June 5th about this book that you two are co-authoring in education. Um, I'll turn to you first, Patrice, because you're first on my screen here. Tell me a little bit about this book and, and what is inspiring you guys to write this book with all the issues that are playing out in the world of education. What made you guys come together to write this book? Yeah, so I think it comes from Stacy and my shared experiences, which were very, very parallel in very weird ways in education understanding that our school buildings are under duress, to put it simply, um, and just coming at it from multiple vantage points as, you know, teachers, leaders, coaches, et cetera, um, and understanding that there's something gravely missing in a lot of our school buildings. So we're centering the book around supporting school leaders and those who work in school buildings uh, around understanding what kind of culture is necessary to build a space where everybody can thrive. 
So we're seeing a lot of different challenges in our schools where students are struggling, teachers are overworked, they're underpaid, they're overburdened, particularly after the pandemic, but this has been a longstanding issue um, and it's been impacting teacher retention rates. Um, so what we're trying to do is really help folks in schools understand how to create a culture of belonging, what are the ways that we can generate collective power in order to support our school communities so that everyone can thrive, everyone can be well, um, and everyone can see success. Stacy, what would you add to that? I think Patrice did a nice job of summarizing it, but what I would just additionally add is that you can read anywhere that uh, we're going into times of uncertainty or that we've been in times of uncertainty and that leadership requires skills that we may have been building um, or new skills that we need to hone. And a lot of that is coming back to that leadership is going to look more networked, more collective, and that to do that um, in really meaningful ways is going to require, you know, uh, leaders to really think about that. And, and our book lays out some of those skills and ways that leaders can do that within their school communities. That's great to hear. I'm excited to read the book when it does come out. All right. Now, my co-host has been on mute this whole time. No, he's not bound and gag, everybody who listens into the program. I know some of you have written in the comments that you wish, but Nick, I want you to chime in here because now I want to get the three of you's perspective on the podcast series itself. We started this uh, collaborative effort between the four of us talking about topics in education. I know you guys have so much history in education, but give me a little bit, Nick, I'll start with you first. Give me a little bit of the aims of this show, we've been teasing it out on our podcast, obviously, to everybody. Tell us a little bit about your goals uh, with respect to this show. That, that is kind of the three of you coming together to talk about issues that are playing out in the world of education, something you love to talk about. Yeah, actually, I mean, it's a couple of things that come to mind there. You know, first is our hope was, at least for me, I'll speak for me for a moment, was to spiral out of, can we please talk an education arm? You know, you and I talked, Mike, often about, you know, when we look at the thrust of our show, you know, we obviously live in the news and commentary world and continue to climb the podcasting charts as we do so, which is awesome. But, you know, in conversations around education, you know, we both noticed that, like, as they came up, there's a larger discussion that could be had. And it really felt like a place where it felt like either we're creating a series or we're going to just really think about spinning this off into its own thing. And, you know, selfishly, I thought about, you know, colleagues of mine, friends who we nerd out about this stuff all the time. Um, and I thought about, let me just bring it to some friends and see their thoughts around that. And and thankfully, you know, Patrice and Stacy, you know, at first we're like, okay, that, <laughs> tell me more about this. But, um, but, but just really latched on quickly to the idea of taking the conversations that currently live for us often through text messages, emails, conversations, organization-wide for us. And how do we bring it to the forefront to, to open that dialogue to people both in the education space and outside of it? Oftentimes, when education comes up as a discussion, it often both for practitioners, educators, or those outside the field, often it negatively spirals um, for a variety of reasons. And we're at a time now where it's even far more pernicious when it does. Um, we're, we're losing trust. We're losing faith in the field. We're losing faith in, in those who are in the practice. Um, and that's being done for political reasons, if we're going to be very honest about it. And it felt like a really good time to, to put to the forefront a conversation from three people who've been in the education space for a while and really invite others to share their expertise, 
to really unpack a lot of concepts that get brought up often. Education is a space where we can hear a lot of terms that are brought up. And the reality of our country is that in the United States, you have 50 states and ultimately you have 50 different education policies. You know, it's very hard for the Department of Ed to really mandate a whole lot. And, you know, we've seen that in the past with Common Core and things like that. So what does that mean? So to anyone in any state in this country, we want to bring to everyone, what does an informed discussion look like that doesn't get into blaming, that doesn't get into, you know, trying to, you know, aim for the low hanging fruit, but really, but really, for lack of a better phrase, educate others. And it's not to be, I wouldn't necessarily say it's our mission. I think our mission is more about providing a space for an informed discourse and really just inviting people who are in the field, outside the field, who really want to have a conversation about education that just doesn't leave us in a place of feeling defeatist, which oftentimes this field can because the work is so hard. It's also very rewarding, but often not acknowledged enough. Yeah. Patrice, uh, Stacey, uh, to each of you, something I was thinking about as Nick was talking there is uh, in terms of the aims and goals of this show, right? Like, how do you take this show and its intention and what Nick kind of said there in terms of informing and educating and not dumb it down, but make it palatable to people that are not working in the education space like myself? Yeah. So I think this is one of the most powerful uh, pieces or components of, of the show is that so I like to say, and I've said it earlier, actually, we were interviewing a host that uh, education is full of what, we, what I call the alphabet soup. So there's tons of acronyms and terms and things that can often go over people's heads. Um, but what I think our podcast does is give folks, um, not only say lay language, but it, it unpacks all of the language and all of the um, mystery and hysteria sometimes around a lot of the terms and just a lot of the uh, things that are, are purported in news outlets and media outlets, and even in our school buildings, to be quite frank. So a lot of times um, parents are going into school buildings, deferring to teachers as the experts. And in some ways, you know, that's to be expected, but in other ways it's it's on teachers and it's on those of us in school communities to, to make the conversation understandable, relatable and accessible um, and relevant to the folks that we're serving. Um, and so I think the podcast actually does uh, its part to sort of um, build a bridge of sorts and to maybe open up conversations for folks to kind of build understanding where they may not have been before and to also lay light on topics that are hot button topics, topics that impact all of us as parents, as, as, as community people, people with children in our families, et cetera. And just as folks who are, you know, citizens of this country, right? Education touches each and every one of us. So I think we do a good job of making sure that the conversations we're having are, as I said, accessible and that it invites people in into that that discourse. Very well said. Um, Stacey, to you, um, what are some of your intentions in terms of doing this show? I know how passionate you are just in hearing some of the episodes and previewing mm -hmm. some of this stuff about education. And you've talked about mm -hmm. your experiences and your upbringing and stuff like that. What are some of the things resonating with you that you want to communicate to the audience through this podcast? I think an opportunity for how anyone, no matter what their role may be in education, that there is a that they can take action towards what they're trying to live into for both themselves and the children they serve and the families they serve. And if you're a parent for your own children. And so that there is this opportunity for all of us to step into that um, together. And so one of the things we often try to ask our guests is, 
hey, what's something parents can do? How can anyone, an educator, um, stay on top of new things coming down the pike, policy or uh, actions one can take or uh, how to keep informed on their own beyond the podcast? And so I think that that to me is one of the the best things we can offer is something that people can take away and be able to do and feel uh, empowered to do that. Well, let's give them something to take away here as we're going to transition into something that you guys kind of do on the show in terms of breaking down topics that are playing out in the world of education. Something caught my eye recently as Anderson Cooper 360 on his CNN primetime show, they did a piece on Moms of Liberty. And if you don't know what this group is, it's the group that was started in Florida during the pandemic and now has chapters throughout the country and really talks a little bit about parent rights, but I don't want to get into too much of me describing them. I want you to listen to a little bit of the piece and we're going to react on the other side because one of the things that's playing out right now is book bans, right? And what are some of the subject matter that kids can look up in either the library or that they're being taught in classroom settings? And that's kind of been the big talking point for groups that are similar like this. So let's play a little bit of this and we're going to react on the other side. Take a listen to this. Moms for Liberty is a parent activist group. It began in Florida in 2021 to protest public schools being closed for COVID and mask mandates. The group became a frequent and spicy presence at school board meetings. But now there are more than 250 Moms for Liberty chapters nationwide, the group says. And it has gained major conservative allies and morphed into something else, a campaign against supposed indoctrination of children on race and sexuality. I have the right to say, I don't want my kids to learn this. I don't agree with this movement. And that's my right. I've read a lot of criticism of your group. People say that this is kind of like a a moral panic, that people have an irrational fear of what's going on. We're not looking to, to ban books. We're not looking to burn books. We just need to get back to a system where parents know what their kids are learning. And for the most part, it's educational and not political. One of the books on your list is Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. I mean, it's considered one of the classics of modern literature. Right, I read that in high school. Well, yeah. why would we, would you want that removed from the no, library? No, we don't, again, age-appropriate. What might not be appropriate for a six-year-old is appropriate for a 15-year-old. Is someone assigning a first grader at the Slaughterhouse-Five? Uh, no, but again, it's the right of the parents to know that it's there, that their children have access to something that they may not have access to at home. Why is asking a child their pronouns indoctrination? If you ask my children, who are seven and eight, what are your pronouns? They don't even know what that is. So when you ask that, you're planting the seed in their minds that they maybe should identify as another gender or that identifying as another gender is hip or cool. Hey, my teacher's asking me, so maybe this is what I should do. All right, so there's a lot there, okay? We all kind of made our own faces and for the people listening to us on audio, they don't know what those faces kind of represent. But I'm gonna get into each of you individually because Um, This is something that's playing out right now in school districts everywhere. Uh, We've had correspondence on, I can remember Mike Emanuel from Fox News coming on when he was covering Landon County, Virginia, and he was saying that, you know, these are normally snooze fests and here's 300 parents that are complaining about some of the materials in the kids' texts. And he's like, when I asked them to see those texts, they couldn't produce it for me. If you remember that, Nick, when he said that on the show, and he's like, you know, I'm a reporter. If you have it, show it to me and I'll do it. And in that piece, 
uh, Darcy Schoen, who's the, the Colorado chapter of the Moms of Liberty, she mentioned there about age appropriate materials. And you heard the correspondent, Ellie Reeve from CNN say, is anyone telling them to read this? And she's like, well, no, but well, the sentence should end right after that because no one is doing it. So I want to start in a kind of like a roundtable format here. Stacey, let me start with you. You hear something like that from somebody that has you know, a presence right now and a voice. You heard about the beginning of the piece that there's so many uh, chapters for Moms of Liberty, and you kind of hear a little bit about what she's talking about, right? Not having textbooks that are age appropriate or having at least textbooks that are age appropriate, but there is nothing right now where in classroom settings, kids are being shown things that are not age appropriate. How do you, working in the education space and now with this podcast as an outlet, like how do you channel and take that message and kind of break it down and say, this is what's actually true. This is what's not actually true. And what stood out to you from the piece? Oh, that's a lot. I mean, what's really standing out to me is, you know, in uh, Patrice, Nick and I have been speaking a lot about, you know, banned books and just reading different articles, um, being in different spaces. I mean, where I live, if you walk into the public library, they actually have a banned book reading night for kids. And there's something really um, important about that to me um, in that when we say we're trying to ban ideas, studies out there, and the Washington Post quotes a couple of these studies that say, hey, these things don't really impact um, kids the way you think they do, right, to, to Moms of Liberty and to that piece where they're worried like they're making suggestions by just having it in print or ideas that kids might read. Um, it, it, there are studies that say, well, one, some somewhat, some of this is new and widely uh, being accessible. And so we don't really know the impact. But if we look at other spaces and we look at other literature that has been widely available and does it increase, you know, for example, one of the studies was around suicidal ideation. Does it increase that? It doesn't. Right. And so I think it's false on a lot of levels. Um, the banned book really stands out to me because I think it's harmful um, in, in many ways. But I think also as far as text um, and age appropriateness, I would agree with you, Mike. I mean, there's nothing in the school that isn't age appropriate for students, um, particularly when you're speaking about textbooks. Um, but when you and, and even if you're talking about the books on the shelves, you know, students aren't reading things that are above their age or end or reading level typically. Patrice, I want to turn to you because, you know, as we're listening to that piece and now I'm starting to recall some of my time being in school and I don't remember, you know, a teacher saying you need to read this and then me turning it, being horrified and showing it to my dad or mom and being like, what is this? And then my parents making a big stink. But it's almost like either the media is covering outliers that are happening or it's happening more frequently now in schools. When you were listening to the piece right there, and obviously your familiarity with what Moms of Liberty is doing kind of in this space, what were some things that were running through your head here? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is the indoctrination piece um, and the privilege that I'm hearing in these conversations, right? So I think about the fact that as an example, a lot of US history textbooks um, tell the story of our quote unquote founding fathers in a very heroic and um, patriotic way. In a lot of ways, a lot of folks um, from different ethnicities, cultural backgrounds could say that that was indoctrination, right? But um, those textbooks will still continue to be a part of our curriculum. Um, and and there, I could give countless other examples of this where there are, there are multiple things that are happening in our schools that 
don't quite tell the whole story in some way or, or privilege one piece of information over another or um, whitewashes certain stories from, um, from our history, right? Or, or doesn't present the full spectrum of, of what we know our nation to be. Um, and so I think there's a piece here around parents taking responsibility for being a part or partners with the school buildings as opposed to positioning themselves as opposition understanding that there's such a thing as called diversity of thought. We talk about diversity in terms of like race and ethnicity a lot, um, but not enough in terms of their diversity of thought. So there's a conversation to be had, I think, with young people around the issues that they're raising and trying to, to present as in quote unquote indoctrination. Um, and uh, they're missing, uh, uh, honestly, an opportunity to support their children in understanding the changes that are ma being made in our, in our country. Um, and this idea that pronouns, oh, my child doesn't know a pronoun, they won't know what that is. I mean, that's part, it's part of teaching uh, uh, ELA, if you, you recall it, it, in grade school, you learn about pronouns. So it's not like it's without outside of the realm of what a young person is gonna learn. Um, and I don't know that any child is being forced to think about their gender just by virtue of them being, being asked a question about a pronoun. So. I think these things are just um, their tools of uh, conservatives to, to, to try to control what's happening in school buildings without giving full thought to how, how it's impacting the school community and not staying in tune and in tied with the changes that we're seeing happening in our society. All right, Nick, to put a bow on this segment, a lot of people are going to get to see how Can We Please Talk kind of operates here. Um, I played the segment for you. We've talked about different uh, buzzwords and phrases. You heard a few in that piece, and you know my feeling on that as somebody who used to write that stuff uh, for uh, people to read on air. I, I, I'm not going to listen to somebody that's going to read buzzwords and phrases. You heard the piece there. You heard Darcy showing from Moms of Liberty there. It, within the confines of what you're trying to do with the Educate Us podcast, what are some things, some takeaways for you from that piece and what is actually playing out right now across multiple school districts where folks are feeling the same exact way, where they feel like their kids are being shown st stuff that's not age appropriate, yet they can't provide an actual example of it? Well, I, therein lies the answer that it's not happening. Um, this is the same thing that has happened with the conversation around critical race theory, which we understand is something that's a discussion. It's a class that's taught in college. It doesn't exist in, in an elementary or middle school setting. And yet um, there's a subsect of people that think this is the way to scare people, essentially. You know, I find it interesting that an organization called Moms for Liberty um, is trying to deny that sense of liberty for other people. So whose who's liberty are we actually talking about? And this goes to Patrice's point about, um, about privilege is that we're essentially seeing mostly white moms um, predominantly in the suburbs that are concerned about what their children are reading. And this comes back to a little bit of what Glenn Youngkin's campaign was in Virginia in 2022 of, of fear mongering, essentially. Um, you know, as a parent, you know, like myself, obviously, um, you know, I can always ask what books are available in my, my child's classroom. I can go. You know, there's nothing to stop me. I can always go visit. When you get into a place where you want to start putting restrictions on what libraries can put forward, um, when someone can go ahead and submit a complaint about a book, just one complaint is all it needs. Um, there's something really damaging about that. You know, as Stacey and Patrice were sharing, you know, a book that came to my mind, uh, reading it young when I was younger, um, probably I read it in third or fourth grade. I got it from the public library. 
was The Whipping Boy by Sid, by Sid Fleischman. The book acknowledges that a boy, it's about a, a prince and, a, and essentially his whipping boy, literally a child who can stand in for corporal punishment because you can't harm a member of the royal family. So instead, this boy takes the, the prince's whip, whippings. Essentially, they basically go on an adventure and they learn more about who they are as people, regardless of their, their status in society. But essentially, when we talk about books that are political, it seems awfully political that we're t- that we have a, a book available that you know basically talks about people as being less than. But now, obviously, I read this years ago. But I know I did a quick Google search, and that book isn't listed as banned. And what that Monster Liberty representative talked about is, well, I don't want books that are political. So define political for a minute, or is it really just the fact that any time a child is introduced to non-hetero people, this is suddenly something problematic? Because that's what that that's no different, honestly, than the fear mongering that took place before the loving decision when interracial marriage was perceived as, well, something we should worry because what happens, you know, when we have that going on or what happens shortly after slavery? Well, well, you know, African-Americans are now free, but they can't run for office. We can't have them have jobs. They can't have money. So we come up with other manifestations to say something's wrong. We got to do something about that. And this is just what we do here. Like, Essentially, in our country, take any subgroup of people that is that is not white. We are going to at some point say, hey, I'm afraid of them. They are not American. They are the problem. This time around, we're essentially going after the trans community after this. And it's just basically this laundry line of people that that essentially conservatives like to point out and say, well, I'm I'm scared of that person. That's the other. Now, the move is I'm afraid for because our children. That's the ultimate one. Like, I'm going to produce fear in kids. And I mentioned the Virginia election last year, or now almost two years. Yeah, still last year. And that's what happened. You start to scare people who don't wish to be informed, who instead want to basically be told by Glenn Youngkin, of all people, um, what is and what is something you should be worried about. And then you result in this nonsense. This is a rehash of what we saw with Married with Children in the 90s, right? TV show comes out. Some people are concerned. They start picketing lines and say this show is not appropriate. And and this is the new rehash of it. It doesn't. It's not substantive. Stacy brought up a really good point that the things that people worry about in these organizations about are not happening. Well, we put the bow on the segment there. As I always say, uh, that's why Nick is the co-host of our show. The ladies got to see a little bit of that. They, if, For those of you watching on YouTube, you couldn't see me try to rap uh, Mr. Severi there. The ladies got to see a little bit of that. Uh, it's a tough ask. It's a tough ask, but he makes a good point. And he lands the plane. Uh, I, I love that, Nick. No you're, no, you're right. I mean, this is why I'm so glad that you guys have this show coming out on the network, because there are so many issues that are playing out in the world of education. And for somebody like me, who's a lay person who's been on TV before, uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera, trying to communicate something to an audience is different than, or actually it's no different than what a teacher is doing in a classroom setting. And I'm so glad and lucky to have you three a part of Leon Media Network and doing this show. You can check out the Educate Us podcast starting Monday, June 5th with new episodes every Monday. Stacey, Patrice, thank you so much for being on the program. I can't wait to listen to more episodes of the show. Thanks, Mike, for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. All right, our thank yous there to Stacey Schultz, Patrice Fenton, and Nick Saveri. The new show finally coming out soon, Educate Us. Go check out leonmedianetwork.com backslash educate us, or you can just go to leonmedianetwork.com, click on podcast tab, and the show's right there on the bottom. A thank you to them for coming on the program. I'm excited 
to hear that show, Nick. Um, I know it's been a, a labor of love for you. So I'm truly excited for everybody to come listen to this show coming real soon. As for our show, always video. You want to see what Stacey and Patrice look like in person. Check out our YouTube channel. Head to YouTube, type in Can We Please Talk. We should pop right up. Hit subscribe for me. And you can watch the video of, of the interview we just did with the ladies. Audio podcast platforms, you know them by now. You're listening to them on now. Shout out to everybody on Good Pods that listens to us. And shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. Can't do it without them. We can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. We'll see everybody next time.